Howdy, folks. You have stumbled in once again to the Full Contact Cannabis Podcast with my good friend, Mark Stepp. I'm Harold Jarbo, a.k.a. The Old Hemp Farmer. And this wonderful podcast is sponsored by Tennessee Homegrown and The Old Hemp Farmer's Wife, Topicals and Soaps. Yay, LT. Yes. Uh, she's doing real well. Topical, it's a weird, you know, cannabis is going through some stuff. Uh, a lot of companies are folded. One of the easiest things to do is topical. So a lot of those people have gotten out. And uh, the old hip farmer's wife is doing, has having a pretty good year. That makes me ask an interesting question. Yes. In our world, by code and law, are topicals edibles? <laughs> That's Link, a good question. Makes you think, right? Because, makes you well, think. <laughs> the, well, the thing about it is, if you make an organic product with all organic oils in it and stuff, theoretically, it is edible. Interesting. Well, LT stuff, it basically, she just puts organic oils in it and organic beeswax and organic coconut oil and all those things, you know, it may not taste the best, but well, I, you, you could you could smear that on your avocado toast, and maybe as a different layer, add a little punch. You know? Well, at one point, till we got the new law here in Tennessee, the HBO four hundred three, there was that people talking about trying to be able to uh, have edibles they could get in under being the topical because topicals are kind of not covered by HBO 403, which is the Tennessee Recreational Life Law. All right. So this has been a great plug for LT. And, yes, uh, it has been. The Hemp yeah. Farmer's Wife. So let's move on into our uh, lovely HB discussion. Okay. Well, before we go on HB, I think folks need to kind of catch up on what you're doing because people do follow you, Mr. Step. And also, it's always cool. Where are you at today? Today, I'm in uh, Los Angeles, California, where it is August, but thank God we're still experiencing June gloom. Which means what? Well, there's a morning layer of cloud and fog. I live pretty close to the water, so it comes in at about eh, 5 or 6 p.m. in the evening and then doesn't burn off till midday, and that helps the coastline stay cool in our lovely... Uh, eat infested earth that we have decided to scorch as a human race so you're having a wonderful la day yes i uh i got up early and because there is cloud cover i've uh, i've uh, been detailing my car and, all right uh, got a little bit more to go after we finish oh, this podcast oh, oh, oh could you please brag about your la car uh, it's just a honda it's a little two-seater honda you know <laughs> It's a it's a late model 1997, uh, but I've taken pretty good care of it over the years. For folks out there, this is a true L.A. car because there was only like 10,000 of these bad boys made, and it's basically you can ra you've raced in that thing, haven't you? Yeah, I've turned a couple of laps around a few tracks out here on the West Coast, and uh, it's yellow so people can see me coming when I pass them. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's uh, actually a Honda NSX, 1997. Like I said, Honda built those from '91 uh, till 2004, which was the Generation One, and then they did another five years with what they called the Generation Two, which is that run is now completed too. But 
on the inside, it's a Honda and uh, it's bulletproof and I love it. And I'm very fortunate to own one. So if you move to middle Tennessee, would you like to put that thing in a glass case? Oh, no, no, no. I, I bought that car to enjoy it. Um, it's, it is a collector's car, but I don't like it to collect dust. I would rather get it out and drive it what it was meant to be for. So, uh, yeah, it's my daily driver in LA and, uh, I do have another Honda in Nashville now, but I would, uh, I would drive this one just as much. I think in Nashville, Tennessee, possibly quite possibly. And I think that it's arguable the worst drivers in North America. Yeah, I think I'm going to agree with you on that, and that's including the lovely L.A. that I live in. Um, I'm going to contribute that to COVID. Uh, it seemed to be that most places in the country, but Nashville in particular, decided that during COVID, um, most traffic laws were just merely suggestions, the biggest one being running red lights. Um, all, oh, my God, they're horrible here. And that, seem, that, that seems to have stuck. Um the challenge in LA that has always been a thing is yes, there's traffic and it's, it's very congested, but it makes people drive kind of safer and more alert because if you mess up, chances are you're going to slow down a lot of people and they don't take to that kindly here. And in Nashville, there just seems to be a, shall we say a laissez-faire kind of attitude that, oh, well, you know, um, you run a red light here, somebody's going to hit you because everybody's waiting to go. But in Nashville, people just assume everybody's just going to wait on them. Uh, it's very remarkable, and it's um, totally changed the way that I drive in Nashville when I am there. Um, I feel like I'm in Sunday driver mode all the time because I'm just waiting for somebody to plow through a stop sign, plow through a light. Plus, the plethora of different kinds of cars with your influx of people moving there from New York, L.A., you got your giant Range Rovers that are basically rolling blind spots. You got your influx of Tesla and for some people, Tesla drivers seem to think they have extra special rights. And I know this is going to offend all you <laughs> Tesla drivers out there, but I don't really care. You're not doing anything to save the environment. And at the same time, you've decided that you can drive aggressively because you have a car that is very powerful and doesn't have gears. So foot to the floor means it's going to go very quick. Anyway, right. sorry, sorry to rant on Tesla's pet peeve. No, that, no that's okay. You know, it's a top, very topical. And X and all that. I'm not even going to go into X. That just is so weird. It is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's, let's do go into that because the epitome of that is they put up a dumb sign in San Francisco that was so bright on their headquarters there that six blocks of neighbors complained and the FAA complained as well that it was distracting pilots. So they had to turn it off. <laughs> I love it. I guess, I guess Musk thought he was hoping... Uh, SpaceX uh, pilots up in space would see that sign. Oh, that would be so cool. Like you get up there, you're just, and if you look out the right side of your plane down there, you'll see the X sign in San Francisco. That would be so also though, we, you know, as we're going, where's Waldo? You just got back from Washington, didn't you? Yeah, I was in uh, lovely Washington state for a short week. And uh, I was actually in Kalama, Washington. Uh, 30 minutes north on the five of Portland Had a wonderful relaxing time. It's a great little logging community. I and, think there's uh, an animal company that's out of there. If there is, I did not see it, which doesn't mean anything. Well, uh, it's, you know, it's edible companies, which, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. There is some of the best coffee in the world there. No, no kidding. 
So, well, I think they came and they chose it because it was a uh, memory serves and great. It's a logging town. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's, it's basically right at the point where the Cowlitz uh, River splits into the Columbia, huge logging station there, and also um, a, a grain uh, transportation area that uh, takes grain off the boats and gets it into trains, as well as a little bit of trucking. But they don't not a lot of trucking in there, you know, because of the hills. Of, the, of that state so they do more with trains still which is really good to see so did you feel nostalgic uh i don't know if the folks out there are listening knew mr step is a cannabis professional at one point you had invested into a cannabis company in washington so did you get all nostalgic about getting into the cannabis business again uh none whatsoever <laughs> probably the right platform to discuss that but no well, the reason I'm saying that is that, you know, whether people, you know, um, it's an interesting time in cannabis. Tilray bought eight, what do you want to call it, microbreweries from Anheuser-Busch, one of the largest cannabis companies who had an $80 million investment into a CBD company. They went belly up. You know, maybe you get back in the cannabis business, might, you know, because at one point you were brewing beer, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, what? Okay, maybe the best way to get in the cannabis business now is to start a microbrewery. Yeah, I, I tell you, it, everything I've read about that event's been, you know, fascinating. And, and I wasn't aware that they had invested in a company in the cannabis business that went belly up. I wasn't even aware of that until you just mentioned it. Um, all the articles I've been reading were based on the craft brewing um, market. And it seemed that Anheuser or AB Beth, uh, the owner of Anheuser Busch, they they felt that the craft beer market was uh, dwindling, and data does show that. I think it's uh, oversaturation. Plus, I believe it's, uh, for lack of a better term, gentrification of the craft beer market. Because as these companies buy them, of course, they drive them to do things that maybe they wouldn't do in a craft, a true craft brew market. Till is it Till Ray? Is that the name? Del Ray, yeah. Del Ray. Supposedly the largest cannabis company in the world. Yeah, according to themselves. Uh, yes. Uh, it, I guess they haven't talked to China at all. But anyway, uh, <laughs> they. it seems that they feel that there's still a market there. And maybe they're going to carve out and mine out the niche of it uh, and try to keep it crafty. I think... On it, in all honesty, and we don't have to delve into it at all, but I think it was an unloading of businesses from AB to make up for the Bud Light controversy that's been going on now for seven months. I think they're trying to shore up a lot of loose ends to try to get their profits back on and hopefully not have to lay off more employees that they have been so far. The, the biggest thing that interests me about all this is Tilray sounds a lot like Tegrity. Well, no, Tilray, I it it's like that. Make it to to me, the whole Tilray thing, them buying breweries was crisis management. Yeah, I think it, yeah, read yeah. That, that Til, Tilray now might be the very well, if, and I I think I'm right on this, the largest craft beer owner in in the country. Now. Could be, and and because I did not realize they had been doing this quietly for a bit. Yeah. Yeah, it does join some other products that they already had, but they also, I mean, they they bought some quality craft breweries from from AB for sure. Um, uh, pretty crazy, 
actually that 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 they were willing to sell those and i think they got a good deal well it all depends if ab got rid of businesses they they did the projections on that were either their sales were going to be neutral or going down and they got out then it was a it was a great thing the thing yeah. that gets me is with Tilray is you did not seem to be very good at running cannabis companies. We seem to be in a period of time uh, right now where everybody wants to start a small business and also nobody wants to seem to start a boring business. So right now you look around, well, what's exciting? Well, you can grow cannabis, you can make bill or have a, a distillery, that's hot too, getting your own little distillery. Mushrooms now are big. All these people walking into these businesses, and it looks like everything else. The people who got in the first two, two or three years on this and were positioned when the, the craze actually took off made money for a while. But, yeah, he, yeah, I, mentioning mushrooms kind of related. Um, I have a good friend in Athens, Georgia, who's been growing mushrooms for, gosh, it's got to be 25 years. He started. A long, long time ago, and and I talked to him about a month ago, and he was talking about competition, and he was just thankful that he was boutique and he had stayed boutique, and his he's a restaurant supplier both in Athens and Atlanta, and he just said that he thinks, you know, every day he's thankful that the restaurants he deals with and the distributors he deals with are loyal, because he has had a lot of discussions with them concerning. Are you going to go with these other companies now that they're upstarting and they're probably a little cheaper than me? And he'd say 90% of them said, oh, no way. We've been in business with you 15, 20 years, so we're not going to we're not going to change that. And he never, he, he got his business expanded enough for him to survive on and what he was comfortable with. And, and he's never wanted to go giant or any larger because, you know, he liked to keep it boutique. Anyway, sorry, that was a mushroom tangent. Carry on. Well, no, but well, that's but there's one of the, the perfect example of something that on the outside looking in, like, didn't we say how hard could it be to grow mushrooms? I know it's how hard could it be to make beer? How hard could it uh, be to grow weed? Yeah. It's like mushrooms, right? You just put the spores down there and they put them in the dark and you, and you got mushrooms. Uh, um, he, he, I was living very close to him when he first started. It was probably... Two and a half years of him R and Ding, taking over all the closets in his little apartment and building a little shack out back to house these things. Before he felt he had one mushroom that was marketable. Thing that got me on this tan tangent was is that I still think there's a boatload of people that are still in this. What do you want to call it? Spurt because over the last couple of years, for whatever reasons, there's been more small businesses made in the United States than I think ever. And what I'm saying is, and what gets me, whether it's cannabis, beer, or mushrooms, how little people research the market and the procedure before deciding, heck, we're doing this. Yeah, and yeah. And, and and related, I mean, you know, you you speak of me brewing beer. I mean, let let's be transparent here. I had a a small Pico C, and I was making two and a half gallons at a time, pretty much as an experimental and. You know, I probably hit three out of five, but as I started to understand scaling that up and understanding it, it was scary. It's a daunting, craft beer is a daunting business. And, you know, there's some really good brewers out there, rightly so, they should have a corner on the market. 
you know, Yazoo in Nashville does really well. Uh, Goose Island has been successful. They don't, in those companies, you notice they don't have to advertise anymore. They have a built-in market. They'll expand as word of mouth or whatever, but to break into that market and put a dent in an already saturated market, just like cannabis is, is deep pockets and a lot of effort. And this is the other thing is about these companies is, is that you can have to be consistently on and consistently pushing forward. Yeah. And there's a zero tolerance for screwing it up. Yeah. It's one of, it, <laughs> it is, you know, we spoke about, uh, the Kaizen. Yep. Well, anything you grow or you make like, or ferment or whatever, you have to be in a state of Kaizen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it. yeah. And I think just the circumstances of what's happened to our world in the last 10 years, uh, Kaizen is, is, is normal operating business now. You know, I, my, with my other business, I'm all in constant change and, uh, and I see change coming and predicting, oh, interesting thing. Side note, my business, you know, I run a post-production business. The software that I use, Avid Technologies, which also owns the big uh, audio editing software, which is Pro Tools, is being sold to a third-party uh, company called STG, I believe. And I don't know I know what they do, but uh, both of those pieces of software and hardware are being sold for one point. $4 billion. You don't think this is going to be wedded with AI, do you? Well, Avid uh, Media Composer is always get, already getting ready to show um, AI uh, integration into the software at this year's IBC convention. Uh, you know, you knew it was coming. It's infiltrated everywhere else. I feel like the company itself really moved into basically just giant mass hardware storage. They may be keeping that part of the company. I'm not really sure. And they're willing to let go of the rest of it. I was just, I was a little bit shocked and maybe I'm out of touch that a 30 year old software company basically sold for only $1.4 billion. And in our industry, it was really the industry standard. I was, I was a little surprised at that price, but some other people I've talked to said, yeah, still a lot of money. Well, is that because people are wondering about, you know, I mean, we can talk about step a little bit. Step does multi-camera editing, which can be quite, quite complex. I mean, you're, you're having to keep track of the length of the program, what shots, how it does, and it all has to time out. The amount of variables when you do multi-camera folks is almost infinite. Yeah. So you could see where coming in and doing that, at least as far as part of the construction of production, AI could come in there and kick ass. Um, yes and no. I, I think. But I mean, what I'm saying with for someone like you, you can go through a program, all your multi-cameras all gets done, and basically, if you had your AI right, you could have your selects for you. Boom. You yeah, I, I just sit down. Yeah, that's the theory, I'm sure. Um, I still think, and I'm not talking about myself, there's plenty of really, really talented editors out there in multi-camera. I think still there's an art to it to not always pick the obvious shot. And I think AI is going to pick an 
obvious shot. Maybe it's a good baseline to start with, but then you could go through and noodle around with it and look at some other ideas. Um, I'm very interested to see if it does work. I, I, I would like to set up a challenge race to see if I could, they edit a song and it edit a song first, see who was done quicker and then also see which one was better. And there is, there is good and bad. I think in this scenario, I think that this company might be a bit of a corporate raider where they're going to buy it all and then sell it off a piece at a time. Uh, and there is competition in software editing now. I mean, Final Cut Pro came out there. Adobe Premiere's got a big stab in it. Also, the one that I'm interested in, and Blackmagic has come a long way, and they've introduced editing into their software platform, and it's pretty good. And I'm wondering if Blackmagic will buy the editing software part of it and either incorporate it into theirs and then fade out Avid or just switch theirs to that platform and call it black magic editing instead of habit. It, I mean, it just came up a week. <laughs> it just came up a week and a half ago. So, all right. Well, you know, we're going to have to segue out of that. Right? Yeah, this is boring. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, yeah. On today's episode of editing today. With yeah. Mark yeah. Step, move it. You know, please, please, please move on. <laughs> <laughs> no, but AI though, it's, Funny because, like I said, the last podcast we did with John Kearns, especially in the lab setting and, and analysis, AI is going to be a, a big part of it. Sure. So, speaking of which, it was kind of a segue because one of the big things when we talked with Mr. Kearns was, was the lab testing, especially in regards to the uh, infinitely interesting recreational cannabis light law of Tennessee, which is, was formerly known as the bill HB 0403. And we're going to have to change the name to it. Something's a little bit spiffier. And well, why wasn't that HB 0420? And I think we probably have to go in deep in the bowels of the Tennessee legislature to find that question out. Unfortunately, it didn't time out to be HB 420. I know that's what I'm saying. You know, just like, come on guys. Although, though, this is the thing for those folks who did realize they passed that law on 420. So there's a connection. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, now, uh, since the last time we met and talked, folks, uh, this law took place in Tennessee. It took effect July 1st. And uh, there was a lot, a lot of fear and trepidation about what would happen once the law got passed, it passed and a few days went by, everybody looked around and basically nothing had changed. Well, the simple fact that uh, if you have a law, but no enforcement, it's not really a law. Well, but that's popular in our country right now. Most, most laws that are on the books aren't being enforced. Well, yes. So maybe that's the whole thing. Maybe this laissez-faire towards cannabis is just part of this. Eh, eh, meh, ah, doesn't, you know. But so one of the things, though, that has happened is been an uptick on THCA flower, which was what everybody was all, I mean, seriously, a slight uproar. Am I going to lose this? Listen, right now, there is more THCA flower being sold in Tennessee than ever. And I'm wondering if a lot of people didn't even know about this stuff until they passed the damn law. What do you mean? This stuff is 
legal and it has been legal. The flower sales, cannabis sales overall are up in Tennessee. There's another reason. Uh, it's the summer, more touristy area. And in any cannabis market that has tourists, you sell more cannabis. So it's cannabis business now in Tennessee. Tourist can't business is $2 billion. And I would bet you that uh, Tennessee cannabis has a chunk of that. But the thing about it, when they come here, the you know, it's, you know, the tasters are gone and some uh, disposables, uh, cards, bank cards. But the thing that dominates the market right now, 12 or 13 ways you can get cannabis, flour probably has 40% of the market. Yep. At least. So now even more and more cannabis is being imported from wonderful places like uh, California. Yeah. So so one of the best things, which is cool for you, because one of the things Mr. Stepp has reported on is how bad that uh, legal recreational cannabis companies have in California. Yeah. But, and according to Mr. Stepp, there's still a huge gray market in California. Oh, big time. In fact, I, I would say the gray market is probably at its strongest since legalization and might be equal to what it was before legalization. A good reason is, is that any place right now that has gone by the uh, 2018 Farm Bill, THCA, flour is still technically legal. And this is the, the one thing about it. Uh, I think I underestimated how many people could not believe that you could go down and buy high THCA flour legal. Yeah. You know, I mean, I talked to people in the cannabis business who, uh, when this really started and hit hard, I mean, when I hit hard, I mean, it's everywhere. You can go in places in Nashville that in the span of one mile, there's seven different places that you can go in and buy THCA flour. It's like the Golden Mile in Denver, except that it's THCA flour. And quite frankly, Tennessee, no way that their farmers can meet that demand. So it's coming from Oregon, California, probably the two biggest. Yeah, I would really. say And Colorado. So I get the, you kind of try to get a vibe because all of this really is, no one saw this. No one certainly saw that after the law got passed, there would be this laissez-faire attitude. But the big question is, how long will this last? January 1st, 2024, supposedly they're really going to try to start implementing this stuff. But the one thing, and this is not to pick, up, pick on the TDA because I love my agrarian brothers and sisters that work for the state, but they got dumped on and I don't even think they knew how badly they got dumped on until after July 1st. And so now there has been some interesting things happen. What thing, not in the store level, but right now they're not issuing any more licenses for kitchens and production facilities to make cannabinoids, to have arrived cannabinoids. How can you issue a new license if you're not really sure what the rules are? Yeah. So, yeah. Interesting. And I also, mean, in a way, it's a little bit of a sideways way of controlling the market a little bit. 
I don't think it's not controlling the market. What I think it is is controlling the amount of stuff that they have to implement in the bureaucracy. Because they're lazy? No. <laughs> no, because if you weren't going out inspecting all these places, and now you have to, one point the whole hemp department, everybody was eight people. Yeah. And, and part of those people also, they would, there were pathologists. So if they weren't doing hemp, they were off looking at plant diseases. Right. So it's, it's so weird that it gets blanketed under a full blown ag department and it's not its own department. Yes. Thank you. It's totally. So once they, I think, started getting into it and realized, oh my God, you know, we got to go through because even now the kitchens and the people making this stuff, they're going to have to go back and revisit. Yeah. So, you know how we were talking earlier in the podcast about all these people wanting to get into the business, whether it was mushrooms or micro distillery or brewery, there are still a plethora of amount of people wanting to get in this business and they're popping up. The, their new companies, green, I mean, there's a boat I will not list because it's boring. Well, and, and. Uh, this is a derivative back to what you said earlier in this podcast, people not doing their research. Because if people did research right, right now about the present state of the market, they would do a lot of second guessing on whether they want to dive into this. But there's still people opening micro distilleries and microbreweries. And yep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's just absolutely amazing how that th they're doing it. I think that the TDA just said, hold a timeout. Until we start issuing new license, let's see what we got. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure they were, I, I'm sure it was a daunting task on them. And they and they are, the few people that I've met over there, they're great people. And I'm sure they're making every effort they can. But as you stated to me, and I haven't read the long complete, but just through our conversations together, it's a vague law as it is. So. Yeah. So imagining someone who's trying to implement and execute a vague law in an already overwhelmed environment, that, that's a daunting task. And, and I don't wish that on anyone, especially a, quote, controlled substance. It is. And that's that. And that's is right now, uh, because of the vagaries of the law and, uh, and the lack of enforcement, you can buy almost any product that you would buy in Illinois or Michigan or what down here in Tennessee. The, the only thing being the difference between here or an established state like Washington is that in Washington, the standards are higher. Yeah. And let's face it, you can't slap out any cart with any sort of terpenes out there and people buy it. And nope. it's the same thing with the flour. Unless, which is both in Oregon and California and Washington, you're doing the, what do you want to call it, Joe Six-Pack route, and you're putting out the cheap pre-rolls because it's the working person special. Well, right. And in the state of Washington, they just pretty much lobbied and voted to let the THC people control CBD. So that kind of turned all that upside down as well. Yeah, it did. But what I'm saying is if you're just strictly wanting to go out and and which a huge market still is, getting the bang for the buck. Tennessee's not a bad place to buy cannabis if you buy from a neighborhood shop. Well, uh, Tennessee is open for business, and business it, is a booming. 
Tennessee business been very good to uppercut media. See. So we have a new law. I think both me and you predicted it was going to be months and months and months, maybe a year and a half before it gets its wheels. And that seems to be what's going on. Yep. Meanwhile, uh, if you got something that you can get high on, edible, smoke it, vape it, it's a huge market here. And my projections, you know, like of how much is going to be sold here in the state keeps going up. The state kind of pegged it early on when they were doing the legislation, like a hundred million dollars worth of cannabinoids are being sold in Tennessee. Sure. I don't think I don't think that's anywhere close. I think with this with the amount of tourism that's going on, and it's not only going on in Nashville. The regular amount of people that are going to Gatlinburg, or going to friggin' uh, Chattanooga, any place where you can park an RV or you know or have a festival this summer in Tennessee, it's going nuts. And at every one of those, you're going to have not one but probably two or three choices of of different types of cannabinoids and from different companies for sale. Yeah. So I think it's probably going to be at least two hundred million which may sound like a lot, but if you compare it to someone like, uh, let's say, Massachusetts, who sells approximately $20, $25 million, no, I take it back, more like $30, $35 million worth of, of recreational cannabis a month. Yeah. Their market's $600 million. And then you look at someplace like Michigan, which has lost their ever-loving mind. Maybe you can explain this to me. But right now, Per capita, there's more cannabis, recreational cannabis being sold in Michigan than any other state in the nation. Have you been to Michigan? Yes, I have. <laughs> there's not much There's not much else to do there. No offense uh, to Michiganites, but hey. Well, it's a lot of, lot of rural area. Okay. Sure. It's flat. It's flat. They do have a cool, they got a cool lake. Upper Peninsula, man, there's bunches of cool looking trees. Yeah. Yeah. That is a hey. cool spot. A, you know, a, <laughs> yeah, and but they're selling like around, uh, literally two hundred and some plus million dollars of marijuana a month dwarfs someplace like Tennessee. So when you say, you know, there might be a quarter of a billion dollars worth of cannabis being bought and sold in Tennessee, it's like that's really not that much. Not when you think how many, God, how many millions of people see, you know. Tennessee's only got like 7 million people. Right. But they'll probably 20 plus million visit. Yeah. 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 Of course, yeah. now they're visiting one city. No, that's what I'm telling you. Is if you look at the tourist things, Gatlin, the Smokies out that area, more people than it have in years and years and years. Chattanooga. Oh, yeah. I mean, that this is, uh, I mean, but, but Nashville is. Yeah, this is this is post-pandemic travel scourge is what it is right now because I see it. Uh, people feel like oh, I'm out of prison. I'm going to travel no matter what. So even motoring, you know, driving from wherever to get to Gatlinburg is on the rise. But that's due to post-pandemic. Uh, you don't really th think that that you don't think that part of this is it's Tennessee's right now is easy to drive to and there's a lot of cool stuff. I, no, I, I completely agree that it's attractive and it's an option. But, I mean, COVID's been over for how many damn years? It's really only been over for eight months. 
technically. Well, not in Tennessee, my friend. Well, of course. I mean, you know, we can't hold the patron state of shooting stuff accountable, but people are getting out like never before because they felt like they've been imprisoned for three years. So they just go, no matter what. People that probably never been to Gatlinburg in their life before feel like, okay, let's go. And I, I see this, I travel at airports all the time, and right now, and yes, it is summer, but more so than ever, you go through an airport and the huge families of people are traveling like never before. And that's air travel. I think road travel is even more than that. Well, it is because, like I said, Tennessee is one of those places that within six hours driving time, you're in a lot of different places. I mean, completely understand. But back to my ramble about the, the amount being sold here is that because of it, though, has been one of the reasons why here, especially in middle Tennessee, there's been a hand, well, half a dozen or more people actually jump in with money into the cannabis business here. I don't know. I mean, how how long can Nashville keep growing? <laughs> so, you know. I mean, it's kind of like, remember the 80s, everybody done t-shirt business? Mm -hmm. You know, let's sell t-shirt, printed t-shirts and hats. And and that's still there, but not nearly at the level that it was. And then a craft brewery came on, and that's still there, not the level that it was. And now you got cannabis. It's there, but not at the level that it was. So what's next? I think part of it is, and this is my opinion is, is that it kind of usurped places like Myrtle Beach and Branson and stuff because evidently this is the mecca for people who want to come to listen to bad country music or mediocre country music, drink real too much cold, cold beer and eat, you know, tourist food. Well, I mean, you also have an option to ride a scooter drunk. All right. And then if you add on top of it that you could get stoned too, I think that's sort of a, a, it's a full Monty. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I mean, and so because uh, I, I do, Tennessee Homegrown has a, 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 a vendor down in, I'll, I'll shout them out because there's such a lovely Sally. It's called Redneck Legend. And it's yep. basically a little trailer that sells chotskis to tourists who all, after selling hats and t-shirts and shot glasses, decide to start selling cannabis, THCA flour to the tourists. And that and that's the whole thing is that this whole little thing that you have people who were never in cannabis before in their life are only selling THCA flour now because people stumble into their place. Hey, you got any flour yep. in it? And, and the markup on it. I mean, yep. right now, if you can charge $18 for a mixed drink, why can't you charge $20 for a fruit roll? Hey, related but totally tangent question, what's happened with that place? Was it called Buds and Brew or something that was like a beer house and can Well, they're, they're still there, but they, like everybody else, you know, they got in real early and now they're actually... They're being immune. Have you been there? No. Hey, let's go next time I'm in town. Let's go. Uh, they'll, they'll, there is a caveat on their reviews, so I'm not being picky. The The cuisine is not that great. Yeah. <laughs> it's 
Also, it, there's it, I'm sure thing. it's I'm sure it's Hooters level, but there's a reason people go to Hooters besides the food. Just like there's a re reason yeah. they're going to go there besides the food. And the other thing is, is that quite possibly while you're at Buds and Brew, some tourist because it's a dab bar, you can dab at your table. Interesting. So, or, yeah. So you could. There's an occasional tourist who really doesn't understand what a huge amount of, of Molson lights and dabs will do, and they end up throwing up. Oh yeah. Hey, okay. they got free. They got free Wi-Fi. Yeah. Of course, that'll keep people there all day. That's the one thing is is this whole, which kind of reminds me of Amsterdam. For the folks that haven't been to Amsterdam. One of the things happens as soon as it gets springs and you start having a huge amount of tourists, a bunch of them, if they had consumed cannabis, wasn't very, uh, you know, very often. So here they are, they're eating, they're drinking huge amounts of Hanukkah, and they're smoking some of the best weed in there, and they end up going over and throwing up in the, you know, canals. Well, they don't understand the difference between weed and hash. Either. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Gildan? So now we really are, which is one thing about this whole new new cannabis environment. We're having to start thinking about the dosage levels on some of this stuff and how it's delivered because there's now more, you know, there's been a war on how much THC can you pack in an edible. Yep. And and now we are starting to get customers who buy an edible and, and no matter how much you tell them, that's not a single serving, they're eating the whole thing. And because a couple hundred milligrams, they're just getting way too high. Some of them are in, ending up occasionally in an emergency room, but, but a lot of them end up glued to their couch, ready to go out the door. This is all these growing pains that come with basically a recreational life law because the one thing about the difference between a med law and a rec law, and it is, that the law in Tennessee, everybody openly acknowledges that the stuff that's been, been legally being able to sold, be sold under HBO 403 gets you high. It's yeah. not medical at all. No. Uh -uh. There you go. Uh, there you go. <laughs> so for all those folks that do tune in to try to get some sort of inkling of information about what's going on here in Tennessee, Quite frankly, we don't know. And the TDA is not sure because you can write a law, but it's how it gets implemented and dictates what the law really actually is. I have this gut feeling that since the real meat and potatoes of this law is not going to be implemented till last year, probably the state legislature is going to have another crack at this bill. Well, I mean, I think you mentioned to me when you first read it, even before it was voted in, it was a, it was a uh, let's get the ball rolling kind of deal. And I'm sure, as with any legislation, it'll it'll be modified as it goes. Plus, the tradition of everybody is to find the loopholes once the law comes into play anyway. Uh, the other thing that I've gleaned out of this real quick, so because we do have to wrap this up, folks, we don't want to bore you too much. Is the fact right, that I, let me just say I, I apologize. Yeah, no, no, hold it. Hold we talked too. We talked too much about me. It was just boring as anything. No, quite frankly, you're the mo one of the most important things. Exciting. I'm not, I'm not going down that road. Oh no, you're great. Oh, you're wonderful. Uh, but yeah, 
Well, it's like I said, you need bring a unique perspective. But the whole point that I want to do winding up here is this law will probably bump at least a couple years or more any medical marijuana law or a true recreational law. Yeah. Because I think the state's going to have, there's enough conservatism, enough people here wanting to drag their feet about this that basically I think the whole framework is, is you got this bill, okay? And until you guys can do all this and do it right and this, that's all you're getting. Yeah. Make it work. So, all right. I think we're going to try to wind this up. So, Mr. Step, um, when are you coming back to Nashville? Um, let's see here. I don't know. <laughs> Definitely by mid to late September, I have a show there, but there might be some other things that bring me in a little earlier. I'm technically done with the show here around the 22nd of August. So, uh, we'll see. Are you going to have any time to attend any cannabis events here in, in Nashville? You know, it depends on when and what they are. Okay. Well, it's like I said. I don't people. have the calendar. I, <laughs> well, I thought you had people that did that. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I, I'm the people. <laughs> I'm the people. Well, you're other people. All right. That, that's, of course, uh, Mark Stepp of Uppercut Media and our co-host. Yep. My name's Harold Jarbo, a.k.a. The Old Hemp Farmer. We're sponsored by The Old Hemp Farmer's Wife, which is my wife, and she makes great topical soaps and hair care stuff organically. And our other sponsor is Tennessee Homegrown, which makes all sorts of stuff that you can use as a euphoria and for health reasons. Yeah, Tennessee Homegrown, we say stuff that can get you bugs. So... <laughs> That's our new I, 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 Yeah, I can't top that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, as always, folks, keep one eye on the market and the other eye on the weather. And this is Harold Jarbo, a.k.a. The Old Head Farmer. And you've been listening to Full Contact Counts. Yeah, great stuff. Thanks, Harold. I'll see you soon. Full Contact Cannabis is a Tennessee homegrown and uppercut media production. You can find Tennessee Homegrown on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website, tnhomegrown.com, for more background and information covered in our podcast. Post-production services provided by Uppercut Media and can be reached at uppercutmedia.com.